talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Ted and Diana are in the newsroom. Will is on the board. The clocks went back this weekend. If you didn't get your extra hour of sleep, you can sure catch up now. Here's Scott Thompson! I'm up. I'm up. Is anybody feeling? <laughs> no, uh, the boy was right. Everybody's sleeping today. Is it me? I don't know. Is it me or uh, is everybody kind of groggy today? And is it me or am I whining already? <laughs> uh, it is 3.09. It is Hamilton today. I'm sitting in uh, my little thing here. And it's like I said to Will, Will, it's already getting dark. I mean, I got to turn on the lights in here. What the heck is this? Uh, I said to Will, you make sure you, when you're when we're on the show tonight, you got the headlights on uh, on the drive home because it's you know it is what it is. Uh, get off the dude. It is three oh nine. It is Hamilton today. A.M. or P.M. Scott? I don't know. See, I was trying to. We were having this discussion. Is this standard time or is this daylight savings time? And Will and I just assumed that, no, this is when you're saving the time. It's like, no, no, that was the summer. This is standard time. So I'm like, to heck with this. Let's go back to daylight savings time and just do that all the time. Is that allowed? Are we allowed to do that? Are there judges? No, no one's nodding any heads on that. All right, so uh, here it is. I'm not sure if it is the, uh, you know, the time change weekend or if it's just that, you know, it's Monday and it's one of those things, you know what I mean? Um, but, yeah, I am I, a feeling it a little bit today. So uh, extra caffeine on order on Hamilton today. Today. Uh, I'm Scott Thompson, Will Erskine on the board. Ted Michaels, Diana Weeks in the newsroom will join us around the big round table coming up a little later on today uh, and uh, chat about the issues of the day. We hope you hang around and join in the conversation. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right, uh, in case you've uh, been under a rock, the U.S. Uh, land border has been closed to non essential traffic. Uh, well, we can fly back and forth. Um, the, the land borders have been closed for an extended period of time. And uh, even with uh, Canada's border open to those in the United States, uh, it's been some time since, uh, obviously, uh, the U.S. can get its ducks in a row and open both the southern and the northern border, uh, which is happening today. And, and I think just as that was happening, the lineup started as this was announced. And uh, many people and travel trailers and motorhomes and such uh, lined up for when the border was uh, opening up. And, and uh, obviously, travel has been pretty steady. Border traffic has been pretty steady uh, all day long. Uh, to talk more about all of this and, and what it means moving forward, let's bring in Kaylee Elaine, uh, editor, journalist, and media consultant and expert in travel is with us now. Kaylee, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, I hope you're well as well. <laughs> So is this a giant relief for people, or does this just create another scenario or set of situations we have to figure out before we actually do travel? I think a little bit of both, depending on what your situation is. You know, if you have family who are across the border, then this is a huge sense of relief that you're able to finally see them after almost two years of border closures, and you're able to reunite in a way that's a little bit easier if you're looking to be one of the leading travelers, then it might be a bit of a relief that you can extend your travel plans to the states, but a little bit of confusion on, 
you know, what the requirements are, are they going to change, and, you know, what you should know before you book or before you travel. So what should we know before we book or travel? What do we need to know here? Yeah, so it still is that when returning to Canada, all recreational travelers over the age of four must provide a proof of negative COVID-19 test taken within 72 hours of their return flight for planned arrival. So it's a little bit more confusing if you're planning a trip to somewhere where you've never been before and you have to navigate finding a PCR test. Luckily, there's a lot of resources online on you know where to go based on your destination. Some airports have testing right there available and rapid testing, but it is an added cost that is coming out of pocket that you have to consider and an added thing to add to your schedule, especially if you're just doing a quick trip over to the States. So obviously, uh, you know, if you're going and spending the money to go down for uh, an extended period of time or a vacation of some sort, that's one thing, but still an added cost. But this is really, uh, this will probably aggravate day travelers, will it not? Because it's a, it's, it's quite a, a large cost. Well, exactly. I think we're, you know, a lot of us here in the Toronto area are so used to going to Buffalo, whether that's for a sports game, a trip to Target, a little bit of shopping, or to visit family and friends. So that's where it makes it harder for day travelers. Still trying to kind of figure it out because it's within 72 hours, so potentially you could take the test here and have it still be valid for day travelers. But I think it's just an added thing that we have to think of. And also you need to make sure that you have your proof of vaccination status handy, um, and that you can show to whether it is border crossings or potentially restaurants or accommodations or whatever else you need to kind of show the proof to. So what about the cost for this, Kaylee? How much is this cost? Because this is the more advanced test. It's not the cheaper test. Yeah, I think, you know, it can be anywhere from 50 to a couple hundred dollars, depending where you're getting it. The advanced PCR test is a little bit more affordable, I have to say, in the States than Canada, but you're dealing with the American exchange rate, which has never been in favor. So that's something to add to it. And then also, if you're a traveler and you don't necessarily know the destination, you might be going to the closest place to the airport or the closest place to your hotel, which might be a little bit more expensive than if you, you know, yeah. know where to navigate or know where the locals go for that added deal. So I think it just gets a little bit more confusing. And then if you're you know, traveling with a typical family of four or five, then that adds up when you're thinking of four tests that you have to take. And, you know, as you said, obviously the most convenient place to do that would be at the airport, but my guess is that's obviously the most expensive place to get it done. Exactly. And, you know, even if there's a rapid test, they still take quite a bit of time for the results, so you need to add that into your travel schedule. So if you're taking an early morning flight, probably better to get it beforehand. And if your flight's a little later in the day, then showing up early and having that buffer time is really, really important. So uh, is there's lots of chatter whether this will be reexamined. Have you heard anything along those lines that, um, you know, once they get their ducks in a row that this will change? Or do you think this is we're going to see this for a while? I think we're going to see it for a little while. I think this is the longest we've ever had the border closures and the first yeah. border closure that we've had in a really, really long time. So I think that they're going to be really, really cautious when it comes to this because, um, from the American perspective, we're still open the border on both ends from Canada and to Mexico, so they really have to reevaluate. On our end, we have to be careful when it comes to testing and um, when it comes to cases. You know, we're seeing a little bit of surge in cases in Ontario, so we want to be really cautious. And for the traveler, you want to be cautious, too, of where you're going and what their COVID rates are like, just to make sure that, you know, it's safe for you. So let's just say you've decided you're going to you're going to eat the cost, you're going to take your family down to Florida for a week or whatever. 
Uh, and then on the way back, you're going to make some sort of arrangement, whether it's at your resort or before you leave or someplace away from the airport or even at the airport. You get your test done. You're about to get on the plane, and all of a sudden it comes back positive, even though you're feeling fine. What happens then? Yeah, so you have to quarantine for about two-week period, so you're really getting on a vacation rental home site and seeing what you can arrange. Um, you know, potentially you're looking at getting a secondary test because as high-tech as these tests are, we have heard of false negatives and false positives, so that secondary test will be kind of what you're looking for. But then you're also looking at, too, if it is positive and you don't have symptoms, but symptoms might be a few days away, what do you need to do in order to make sure that your recovery um, is okay and that you're set up? So, you know, is it booking that vacation home rental and then having grocery delivery so you're all set up? So it's really an added thought to that. Not only are you planning... So you could, be, you could be down there for another two weeks. You could be down there for another two weeks. You could be down there until you're fully recovered, which is, as we all know, the state has a very different healthcare system than we do. So that you know, could be potentially an added cost out of pocket as some, a lot of medical insurance isn't including COVID. So- okay, so those. let me ask you this, Kaylee. For those insurance policies that say they are, and I guess you'd have to check it, would that would yeah. your insurance policy cover that? Sometimes. I think you know, if this was last year, then it would. But right now, there's a lot of exclusions on your insurance policy, so you're going to have yeah. to look at it. So you really need to be kind of planning for that contingency plan that if something happened, where would you go and how would you deal with it? So I think that's one thing that we all need to consider as travelers, whether we're going to somewhere else in Canada, somewhere else in the States, anywhere that is a little bit more than a day trip where we can trip in our backyard and, you know, what is our backup plan? Yeah, that's something to think about. It's uh, not quite quite as easy as it once was yet. Uh, Kaylee (laughs) Elaine with us, editor, journalist, media consultant, expert in travel, uh, talking about uh, the hoops you have to jump through to get through the border, even though the U.S. land border is now fully open to Canadians that are vaccinated. Kaylee, thank you for the time. Be well. Yeah, you as well. It was interesting when this, um, you know, fight between the Rogers family members broke up or broke out. A lot of people were comparing it to TV shows and such. And it it certainly seemed that it was uh, Ed Rogers that was sort of the rogue here and that everything would come back to the mother and the two daughters and such. And then as legal uh, as legal opinions looked at this, uh, legal experts looked at this as like, I don't know, the way it's written up, he's he's the king. And it is what it is, and the court uh, has uh, made its decision, and the Rogers, the rest of the Rogers family uh, will not challenge it, other than perhaps around a dinner table. Uh, let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor of the Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, and with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. My pleasure. Thanks. Scott, doing very well. So, obviously, I remember talking to experts last week, and it's like, we got two boards here, and that just cannot happen. So, obviously, it looks like the court has fa- has ruled in favor of, of Edward Rogers, uh, not against the mother and the two sisters. So, what happens to that other board, uh, the old one, after uh, Ed has uh, obviously uh, made up a new board? Well, it's gone. And yeah. um, I-, I thought from the get-go, uh, it was a slam dunk for Ed Rogers, I don't mean by that statement to suggest I'm sympathetic. I I think that dual class share structure is an anachronism. I think we should abolish it, but the government doesn't ask Professor Lee what he thinks about it. 
So let's set that aside. I'm not a and fan this was of the way, And this was the, way, this was the way Ted Rogers had set it up. This is exactly yeah. what he wanted, correct? It's perfectly, and let's be clear, I don't want anyone to think I'm suggesting that Ted Rogers, the late Ted Rogers, the person who created the Rogers Empire, or the Sun, or anybody was doing anything nefarious. I think it's bad public policy because the, uh, the legislators of Canada and the United States allowed dual class shares. We won't go into that, but suffice to say, Ted, the late father, the founder, set up and structured the will perfectly legally to create a trust, and he expressly uh, stated his son, Ed, would run the show and vote the 97% of the voting shares. And so Ed said, I don't like the CEO, and I don't agree with my mother. Too bad, so sad. Or my sister, I'm the guy in charge, and I'm voting out the old board. End of story. Full stop. So after looking at two of these different boards, is one favorable than the other from a business perspective? Uh, but what's your thought on one board versus the other? Um, hard to say. Uh, they're you know they're scions or scions of the uh, of business corporate elite in uh, Toronto. I'm sure they're all very honorable. I know I recognize some of the names, but not all of them. I'm not from Toronto, um, but I'm sure they're all honorable people. The larger issue, Scott, is not, uh, and I say this very respectfully, it's not the composition of the board per se, because the ones he chooses are going to <laughs> vote the way that yeah. the, uh, Ed Rogers wants them to vote, to be blunt. The, the larger issue is the future direction of this empire called Rogers, and whether it's going to be successful in acquiring Shaw. This is a not a beanbag. This is a $26 billion acquisition. Like, that's a, that's a lot of money. <laughs> that's real money, as they say. Mm-hmm. Even in Ottawa, that's real money. And so the question is, will the competition tribunal allow this to go forward? I mean, just just knowing, I don't know if they will approve it, but, you know, there's no question that this is going to reduce competition in Canada. We've already got a concentrated industry, only four companies, really. Some could say it's four and a half, including... Uh, and on that, on that point, Ian, on that point, Ian, many have said, you know, we, we need to, to blow this up. We need to allow more competition. Yeah. We, many have said to bring in U.S. Uh, carriers yeah. and such. So now with all of this attention focused on the bickering of the family, I mean, being a rich family bickering over things, that's one thing. But to yeah. control or be such a major player, uh, and there's so few of them controlling the telecom industry, will there now be a call to, you know, this is another reason why we got to dismantle this stuff. You're right. That's the one argument. And, and I, I believe me, I have no dog in this hunt. I don't invest in any of these companies. But very quickly, the other argument is we're the second largest country in the world, uh, geographically, huge country. Uh, the government has said publicly repeatedly they want broadband, high-speed Internet, running out to these rural communities, indigenous communities. Well, that costs enormous amounts of money. And Rogers made the argument, the only way we can roll out broadband to all Canadians is if we scale up and get bigger so we can afford that very expensive rollout job. So on the one hand, we want uh, high-speed broadband everywhere. But on the other hand, we want more competition. And something's got to give. 
At the end of the day, though, Ian, they've been saying that for decades. You know, oh, well, we just built the tower, so we got to get a thing on that. I mean, is yeah. there not uh, some way, uh, some happy medium here, uh, letting more U.S. influence, getting them to pay for all of this? Well, that's a very good question. It really is, because what if we did allow Verizon to come in, or ETT, or T-Mobile from Germany, or the French uh, huge telecom called Orange? You know, they've got deep pockets. Would they invest here? Don't know. You know, it's that classic argument. You get it in airlines, too. Not big enough, they claim, to support five or ten airlines, and we'll get lousy service if we let a whole bunch of them, because they'll just cream skim. Same argument in telecom. Hard to say, because we're only a small, we're only 38 million people. We're smaller than the state Mm -hmm. of California in a landmass that's larger than any country in the world, including the states. Only Russia is bigger. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, the telecom scandal, saga, I shouldn't say scandal, saga continues. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thanks. Uh, Good afternoon to you all, Roundtable. Thanks for taking the time. Greatly appreciated. Well, thank you. Hello. How are you? Hello, hello. I'm doing well. Hello. Uh, poll question of the day. We always start with that. Uh, we talked about this a little bit last week. U.S. border is now uh, reopened. Uh, are you going? And 80, uh, 88% right now are saying no. But what I really wanted to ask you guys is, um, are you surprised how big the lineups are? I mean, it's it, the lineups all morning and all afternoon have been incredible. I wonder how many or a lot of those people may be going over to see family members that they haven't been able to see in for a year and a half or two years because of the pandemic. Yeah, good they, point. You know, they, they, there are some people that are living literally like they can see almost each other from like yeah. Fort Erie and Buffalo, you know, the Rainbow Bridge. And we've seen the stories. And you can practically wave. So there are heartbreaking stories. They, have, they haven't been able to. So I wonder how many people are doing that. Or are there some people that said, yet, finally, we can go shopping, you know, and, and head across that way. But uh, maybe there's just a lot of pent up energy and people just want to get back across the border because they can. Still, uh, you're required as a Canadian coming back. You have to get the PCR test, which can be quite costly depending yep. on where you're getting it. Do you think that'll deter a lot of this, Diana? Yeah, I mean, I was one of those people. My husband and I were supposed to go down to Cleveland to watch a football game at the end of November just for the weekend, you know, on a Saturday, come back Sunday mm-hmm. or early Monday morning. And we had the tickets bought for the game, the Airbnb booked, and we did a refund uh, about three weeks ago because, you know, we were like, well, the border's probably going to open, but we don't want to risk it with the PCR tests because we're hearing, you know, not only is it pricey, but they're backed up and we didn't want to take that chance. You know, we got to be at work on Monday and we're like, well, some people aren't getting them back till Tuesday, Wednesday. So it's it's it was a decision we made. And I think a lot of people are going to be in that boat. Yeah, that, yeah, what I noticed a lot in the footage I saw uh, of the uh, images of people at the border, there's a lot of motorhomes, a lot of travel trailers, a lot of snowbirds yeah, heading down. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, I can see, you know, that situation. But, man, for a day, I don't know. I guess you could get a cheap test up here if you can find one somewhere, and that will last you for the 72 hours if you're just going for the day. But it seems like it's uh, quite an added cost. Are you going to spend the extra money, Will, just to get your wings? <laughs> Ooh, there's good wings, though. No, I don't think so. I I I would just be holding off on it altogether and i'm still not necessarily comfortable with heading down to the united states some of those stories still uh, give me the willies a bit 
All right, you guys, uh, and obviously Diana, big football fan, uh, talking about Angela Mosca. Your thoughts, especially Ted, this morning. I mean, or this afternoon. We've uh, we've spent a lot of time over the years with the Thai Cats in the radio station, and, and obviously members of the team and such. Uh, do you got a, a favorite memory, a favorite thought? Uh, no, just that that you know what you saw is is what you got with him. He was yeah. gruff on the exterior, but inside yeah. he he had a heart of gold. Um, you know, and and I think back now to. All the stuff he did, and he was such a great promoter of the league, but of himself. Yeah. Like he, he was one of the first guys, and he figured it out that when you're on the sidelines, take your helmet off because then the when the camera pans the yeah. sidelines, they all got their helmets on except Ange. And then yeah. of course after the '63 Grey Cup, there was a hilarious sign that they posted every game when they played at the old Lansdowne Park in Ottawa. Some yob would hold up a sign in the end zone saying "Mosca eats bananas." You know, yeah. they were just <laughs> oh because they, yeah, you know, yeah. he he played the role very well because he knew how to promote. It ruffled a lot of feathers, but you know what? Uh, you know, there's not many people in this city that don't know the name Angelo Mosca. And, uh, Absolutely. You know, it's a sad day in um, 84, and I know that he suffered from Alzheimer's for the last few years. And, uh, you know, that's uh, that's not very pleasant. So just uh, let's take the good memories of, of the big guy and all the stuff that he did uh, for local charities. I'll never forget when uh, I was at Y95 and I met him for the very first time. And as you said, he came into the station, just a massive guy, yep. you know, I mean, just huge. And he sat down and, and I was just, I was so intimidated and I was so nervous. Uh, instead of saying Angela Mosca, I said, I, I confused the O and the A and switched them around. And I said, Angela Mosco. And he goes, <laughs> Angela. Angela, Angela's a girl's name. Did you just call me a girl? And it was like, oh, my God, I could feel yes, the sir. sweat yes, just sir. pouring down my face. I thought he was going to come across the table and do a body slam, you know, yeah. be up against a turnbuckle or something like that. Another thing I can remember that stands out, and again, this was many years, this is probably 20 years ago. Um, we were at some event, and it was at a bar or a restaurant in Hamilton. Could have been in Hess Village. And uh, we were up in the second floor. So just like many of the old buildings here in Hamilton, you have to walk up those really narrow yep. stairs to yep. get up. And so we're all up there, and we're in doing whatever the, the promotion was with the Thai Cats, and, and, and Angelo was there, obviously. And on the way to go home, going back down, uh, I'll never forget this because uh, there was a Thai Cat player at the bottom of the stairs, like behind him, and then one in front of him. And he literally had to walk down the stairs backwards because of his knee issues and just the pounding that his body had taken and his knees had taken over the course of his uh, illustrious Thai cat career uh that was the only way he could get down the stairs so it was it was fascinating and yet he was still like you know uh just as gruff and everything as ever and let's not forget that some of those injuries could have come in his post playing days when he became yes. king king con mosca the rascal yes, so yes, you know absolutely i know i mean that's uh, my goodness uh your thoughts any diana on uh you know especially your thoughts of uh, you know considering you're you're a fan of football uh, yeah, you know, I never met Angelo. Um, I will say that, but uh, obviously, being a Hamiltonian and working in the business we do, we know who he is. And uh, you know, of all the things I've read about him, it's just to think his humility and his humbleness uh, is really what uh, you know drew people to him. And mm. uh, you know, founding father of of uh, a lot of things here in Hamilton. And so, I think he's one of those those guys that you know, there's not going to be many more like him, you know, of his kind, yeah, you know, yeah, and I think true. that's yeah. why people are, you know, it's more of an end of an era as well. 
Good point. Yeah. All right, I wanted to get your take on this with a couple of minutes that we have left. Uh, this morning, the Premier uh, holding a news conference talking about building the Bradford Bypass, which is up near the 400 and such, and then there's been chatter last week about building the 413. I remember very vividly listening to Premier Dalton McGuinty say, I'm not interested in building any more roads. Unfortunately, there hasn't been much else built since then. Uh, this isn't a debate between highways and transit because we all need transit and and Hamilton will be a beneficiary of both levels of government, three levels of government as a, as a result of this. But my question is, is building roads a bad thing? How do we grow uh, without roads and infrastructure? We'll start with you, Ted. Well, I'm just wondering, this new highway through Bradford, is it going to be a toll highway or is it not? Because well, if it's not going to be a toll highway, then I'm all for it. <laughs> Quite frankly. Well, you know what? I don't mind the toll, but as soon as the highway's paid for it, let's move on with it. But let's certainly not sell it to somebody else in another part of the world who jacks the price up through the roof like yep. they did with a 407. Yep. Pay for it. I'd rather this going to my taxes than some, you know, company some other way. Good point. Uh, yep. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, do, do, you know, we've got EVs on the way, two big plants. Should we be building more roads? Diana. Well, I was stuck in that massive backup today on the westbound 403 through Hamilton. And, uh, you know, I mean, I know it's kind of unrelated, but um, I definitely think we need more options when it comes to the 400 series highways, whether it's through this stretch or through, you know, more north of Toronto. Uh, but I mean, I definitely do think we need more, uh, but like Ted said, is it going to be told? Like, you know, at what point do, do we charge? And I, I don't know. Yeah, no, that's that's another great debate. Uh, how can we grow without building infrastructure? It just seems bizarre to me. All right, 445. Uh, thank you to all around the big round table. Much appreciated. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, we were talking, uh, obviously, earlier on today, the uh, border, U.S. land border, opened up two Canadians, and the line formed to the right. <laughs> it's been pretty steady uh, all day long. As I'm sure you're going to see shots uh, on the news of uh, lineups of travel trailers and uh, motorhomes and snowbirds and such uh, heading down, and, and those that had family. Uh, just a stone's throw away, but have been uh, obviously prevented from seeing uh, anybody for like uh, 20 months, I think we're up to. So to talk more about a U.S. perspective of all of this, let's bring in Dr. Rodney Rohde, Professor and Chair of the Clinical Laboratory Science Program at the College of Health Professions, Texas State University, and with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Good afternoon, sir. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks, Rodney. Uh, Your thoughts on where the U.S. is right now? Give us a bit of an update. Sure. Well, I mean, from the standpoint of kind of the unfolding pandemic, uh, things are, with respect to the Delta variant, are settling down. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, I believe. They're plateauing. We are seeing some encouraging numbers on downward trends. We're obviously you know, being very careful and thoughtful about that as we're kind of looking forward to the winter months, the holidays, things like that. But things do appear to be falling, plateauing in certain areas, and so that's good news. And I'm absolutely excited about the borders uh, today. I've been reading, you know, some really great heartfelt stories, and it it really uh, kind of melts your heart, you know, to see some of these people that haven't talked to family or friends in 20, 21 months. And as long as, you know, we are careful with vaccination status and COVID testing and people are very, very careful and we watch what's going on, you know, between countries, I think that this can be a very good thing, uh, both for morale and other reasons. 
So I'm I'm watching. I'm a, I'm a bit of a motorhead, Rodney. So I'm watching the U.S. Grand Prix, which of course is in the uh, just outside of Austin in the beautiful state of Texas. And uh, man, you guys know how to put on a show. That's all I got oh, to man. say. Beautiful but they were, they were, weather this week too, Scott. Oh, it was amazing. So, and apparently, and this was a couple of weeks ago, but they had like 400,000 people over the course of the weekend uh, at this event. Does that raise concerns at all? Any fallout from that? You know, we haven't, right now, we haven't seen any yet. It's only been a couple of weeks, so we're kind of keeping a watch on that as far as numbers go. But I'm right in that area. I'm in San Marcos, Texas, which is between Austin and San Antonio, Texas. And that event is held at a CODA every, well, it's the first time it's been held in a couple of years, but you know, they have opened up a little bit with our, our music festival and some of the other things that have been going on this year with with some restrictions around negative testing and some places having vaccination proof and things like that. So I think that helps. I also think it helps that Texas is approaching 60, 65% of vaccinated individuals. Uh, of course, you know, now we're getting the 5 to 11-year-olds started, you know, as of last week. So Again, some positive trends, some positive news, but we are still, you know, very much being careful because we know what's happened in the past with surges and things like that. I just think the difference right now is, you know, it's it's so different than 20 months ago or even 12 months ago when we Mm -hmm. we didn't have these types of percentages vaccinated and we didn't have, uh, you know, as much awareness around masking and, and crowding and things like that. But still watching, right, still being very careful and trying to be safe in those areas. Obviously, for the U.S., uh, not only was it uh, the opening of the northern border today with Canada, but other the, uh, also the southern border with Mexico. Is there more concern with one than the other? Well, maybe. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure if you get the if you get the feel from the citizenry around those areas. They're absolutely, you know, as you could expect, excited to be able to to cross again in San Diego and certain parts of Texas and California and things like that. Again, to my knowledge, they are still enacting uh, vaccination proof and uh, negative COVID testing. So as long as that is done correctly and accurately and, you know, hopefully not keeping lines backed up for hours and hours, but they need to do it right and they need to make sure that they're watching that because we certainly know um, just the influx of a few, you know, transmitters could be problematic in certain parts of the country, especially in lower vaccinated areas. Dr. Rodney Rohde with us, professor and chair of the Clinical Laboratory Science Program at the College of Health Professions with Texas State University, talking about uh, the border opening up between the land borders with Canada and the United States, also the southern border for the United States and Mexico as well. Doctor, thanks for the time and insight as always. Be well. Thank you and same to you. Catch up on the news and information you've missed. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. As you know, uh, we've been at, uh, there's been an issue brewing for the last couple of weeks over what to do with the Canadian flag. Of course, the Canadian flag was lowered after the discovery of bodies, unmarked graves below the site of a former residential school in Kamloops. And they've they've stayed down. There was lots of chatter with the very first Truth and Reconciliation Day that, you know, that would be a good time to come to some sort of a solution, which they have done. But it would have been fabulous if this solution had come as part of the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. Instead of, of course, in the last week when uh, this whole issue was on a collision course with Remembrance Day. 
because, as you know, at Remembrance Day, they lower the flags, and tough to do when they're already lowered. So a solution has been found, and and, uh, and thank goodness, moving forward, uh, hopefully we won't end up in this scenario again. Let's bring in Dr. Ken Coates, Canadian Research Chair uh, with the Graduate School of Public Policy at the University of Saskatchewan and a Senior Fellow of Aboriginal and Northern Canadian Issues with the McDonald-Laurie Institute, and with us now. Ken, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm just fine, sir. Good to talk to you. Uh, thanks so much for the time. Uh, so I'm going to, if I'm making a mistake here, please correct me, but uh, sunset yesterday, the flags were raised back up again. Today, for Indigenous Veterans Day, they were lowered again as part of the ceremony. Uh, we'll go back up uh, for Remembrance Day and then be lowered again. And then when they go back up post-Remembrance Day, there will be a orange uh, Every Child Matters flag flown along with it. Is that accurate, Ken? That's certainly the proposal that's being implemented, as I understand it. It's a, it's a complicated one. And I just want to highlight the fact that, that if there's one good thing that's come out of what's been a bit of a fiasco, to be honest, has been the fact that the, that the, um, there's more awareness of how important Indigenous Veterans Day is. In Indigenous communities, Veterans Day is, and the veterans generally get way more credit and attention than they do in the regular general population. So I'm actually really quite pleased with that part of it. You know, I don't think people knew there was an Indigenous Veterans Day before. Didn't know how important it was to communities. So that's that's a bit of a mark of hope and, and, and opportunity. That was my next question, Ken. Uh, the significance of uh, the Indigenous Veterans Day, and my next my follow-up to that was, are people even aware of that, of this? No, I don't, I don't think they are, and that's really interesting. Indigenous people in World War One and particularly in World War II, um, we weren't allowed to register in a lot of instances in World War One, but in World War Two, they they had a participation rate that was much higher than the national norm, and we see this through the Korean War and even and subsequently, Indigenous people have had a long and very honored tradition in the in the military, and they are respected so much in the Indigenous community. So if you go to a powwow on the prairies, for example, you will almost always have the veterans leading them in. The, the, the powwow dancers don't come first; the veterans come first. And when I go to the First Nations University of Canada events, they always have veterans right front and center. So I find this to be really, really a neat sort of thing that's been there for a long time. And now, now for once, Canadians are paying attention to it. Uh, you know, and, and give credit where credit is due. The prime minister has certainly stumbled many times and, and created an embarrassment for himself and the country, but he has done a lot to draw attention to all of this. And we, we do need to give credit where credit is due there. That being said, should this have been done? You know, as I'm thinking about this and, and the solution, I thought, wow, uh, you know, this is a great idea. It would have been great if they had come up with this solution as part of the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. Back in September. Well, and it's interesting, you know, had they really figured out the need and the opportunity to talk to Indigenous people, they could have done it before they took them down in the first instance. Mm. And, and it's it not a long conversation to have. Lots of Indigenous folks have some, and, and the political leadership have some really, really good ideas about how, how to recognize things. I think it went on for so long that it actually was counterproductive, that people were now starting to make nasty comments and getting getting a bit owly and crazy about about these flags being down it was it went on and on and on and had they done this properly they could have done this really quickly we had national aboriginal day back in june it could have been tied in with that they had truth and reconciliation day in september it absolutely should have been tied in with that 
at, at that particular junction. You could have done something really profound that would have attracted the attention of the country as a whole. Instead, what you get is a, a sort of a political negotiation that's going to result in something that Canadians are going to find, you know, sort of you know, less than emotionally satisfying. They're not going to be all that keen uh, about, about the fact that it's happening this way. And, and I, it's too bad. It is really too bad because, you know, the, the uh, identifying the, the unmarked graves, uh, recognizing the impact on the Indigenous communities, the, the multi-generational trauma, this is a really important part of what happened in 2021. And the flags have become a bit of a sort of a sideshow rather than being something symbolic and important. So at least we're now getting in the right, going in the right direction, and we'll see if we can move it along and, and, and deal with it properly in the future. And although pretty sloppy right now, Ken, it'll be fascinating to see how this is incorporated in next year's day, National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. Oh, well, absolutely. And that's where it should be. I mean, it, it, that that's, as you mentioned yourself several times, you know, that's the juncture where this really should be something of, of great national significance. Um, and we could easily tie them together and do something where we memorialize the children on an annual basis. And, and that's what that's what a, a, a national day should be about, a national holiday should be about, where we actually do reflect on these very important you know, symbols and experiences in our time. Um, and and let's, hope we, let's hope we get it right. And, and the interesting thing is we're just slowly learning that Indigenous folks have tons of really great ideas, that they want to be consulted and be part of the decision-making mm. process. And when you get sort of snap judgments made by any government, doesn't matter what level you're talking about, and people think they're doing the right thing, but they actually send the wrong message. So let's hope we get it right. Dr. Ken Coates with us, Canada Research Chair with the Graduate School of Public Policy, University of Saskatchewan, and Senior Fellow of Aboriginal and Northern Canadian Issues at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Take care. Bye now. All right. Uh, whether you're aware of it or not, um, today is Indigenous Veterans Day. We are certainly learning more about it as now it has been incorporated as part of the flag discussion and the agenda schedule of events as we get through this week and up into Remembrance Day. Um, obviously issues with the flag being had lower had been uh, lowered and rightly so for uh, the discovery of those remains below a residential school in Kamloops and then the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation kind of you know the the Prime Minister's behavior kind of took the the shine off that and eventually what happens is the, the truth and reconciliation the flag uh, on a collision course a collision course with Remembrance Day good news is that has all been uh, addressed and hopefully everybody is uh, satisfactory with the solution moving forward but what does this do for uh, our kids and the younger generations learning about all of this will they learn more than we learned when we were in school here's hoping let's bring in frank dear associate dean indigenous education associate professor and canada research chair at the university of manitoba's faculty of education and with us now frank thanks for the time hope you're well hello scott very well. Uh, do you think many Canadians even realize there was a Indigenous Veterans Day? Well, it's difficult for me to say, but I think that uh, awareness of this day is becoming more and more uh, um, uh, ubiquitous <laughs> across society. And uh, with all manner of different topics emerging that are relevant to Indigenous peoples, I think uh, topics like Indigenous Veterans Day is going to be uh, become more part of the public consciousness 
so um, I'm, I'm unsure <laughs> about about right now, but we're we're getting better, if I may say that. Uh, lots of chatter, obviously, and it seemed that Canadians' uh, opinions, whether it's you know pulling us out of the dark, what have you, but it certainly changed after the after the discovery uh, below that Kamloops residential school. Many are talking about this more now. Uh, we've certainly had the situation as we're just chatting about Indigenous Veterans Day. Is there more awareness? Is the community? Um, are they confident that this will lead? This is this has an impact this time. It's different this time. We will see more awareness, more change. Well, I, I think the, the the fact that you've asked me on and the fact that you're covering this is a reflection on the progress that we're making. Uh, and uh, you are uh, a radio station, one branch of the media, but there are many in many quarters who are doing more to talk about these sort of things. And uh, I think that's what's central to uh, the concerns amongst many Indigenous and non-Indigenous about these issues, that uh, uh, observance of these histories needs to be confronted in public and in schools. And uh, we're trying our best, if I may say we, to to facilitate those conversations. So uh, we seem to be getting to a place where we're comfortable with exploring these topics uh, uh, some of these topics are still developing. Uh, our understanding of these topics are, are still developing. The histories behind Indigenous peoples who represented uh, the Canadian military and other militaries. My brother was uh, served in Desert Storm for the American military, for instance. And um, some of these histories are um, have to be put within the context of the Indigenous peoples' experience, which includes... Uh, the trust and the um, uh, histories associated with Indian residential schools. So um, the, there's there's many subtopics to this general issue of reconciliation. Uh, I think we're getting better at confronting these things and discussing them in an honest way. Um, it, it, it's obvious now that there is a huge gap between what Canadians know or what Canadians know of their history and what is the real history? And and this, to me, as a Canadian, it really resonates with me because I, I'm of the generation when we didn't learn a lot about this. And and now, and I remember growing up, you know, Canada's a young country. We really don't have a lot of history. We really don't have a lot of this, that, or the other. And it's more about immigration and the people that have come here and built the country. When, in fact, we've been leaving this giant hole, this giant gap out of our history. Um, and I think as Canadians learn about this, Canada will feel whole about this as they start to understand there's, it's like, it's, it's like you're in a history class, but we're not going to cover that chapter or those chapters, uh, in the book. Uh, are our kids, are you confident that, you know, I didn't learn it, but the younger people coming through by the time they get through school, that there'll be more on this being taught? So, Scott, you and I are of a certain age. Uh, I, too, had um, um, a primary and secondary school experience in which a lot of these things weren't covered. I did not know of the existence of Indian residential schools until my late teens, early 20s. Um, and uh, that's uh, sort of a reflection on uh, a truth about education, it seems to me, that we're going to cover in the curriculum and school programming what we value if I may say we, schools, school districts, 
how they're informed by the public and so on. Uh, so there was a time when there were a set of narratives, historical or otherwise, that we valued very much that were associated with the Canada we understood at the time. Uh, but that's not static. It's uh, a dynamic narrative that's developing as we come to understand our histories. And uh, look, I, I consult with a number of school districts here in Manitoba, um, and it seems to me not only are uh, schools ready to explore these issues and teachers are ready to explore these issues, but school districts are prepared to put resources in uh, preparing students to uh, come to understand these things better. So uh, teachers with Indigenous studies backgrounds, Indigenous teachers themselves are talking about these topics more in a way that um, I, I, I didn't experience as a younger. So we are getting better um, because education is um, uh, governed per many um, different provinces or different stages um, in this journey. But uh, broadly speaking, I would say that Canada is doing much better at covering topics like reconciliation, covering issues about the traumas of the past. And as we uh, develop, we'll come to understand these issues better. And whether you're in the Indigenous community or not, um, without this knowledge, Canadians aren't whole. I mean, we don't have the whole story. And here's hoping that we have the attention span to to hear the rest of our history, per se. Frank Deere's been with us, Associate Dean, Indigenous Education, Associate Professor of Canada Research Chair at the University of Manitoba's Faculty of Education. Frank, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. Honor. Uh, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, how are you today? Hope you're well. I'm I'm fine, but I'm looking out the window. Scott, it is dark. I know. What the heck happened? We had to get Will to turn the lights on, light this place up like Tim Horton's field, man. I couldn't see anything. I couldn't find my cowbell. I couldn't find anything. It was terrible. I'm knocking my glass over. It's always shocking the first weekday after daylight savings comes, and it feels like like it feels like it's nine o'clock at night right now. I should be like. Well, I don't go to bed for hours after that, but it still it feels like I should be getting ready for bed. It's you know what? Uh, Ted and Diane and I were whining about this on Friday, and I think my opinion has changed because I've started to do some research and notice how dark it was early in the morning when you get up, like 7 o'clock, that sort of thing. And, uh, and you know, who cares? Because we always argue about this six every six months. Like, just put it to bed and move on. <laughs> but today, it's right. It's like, would I rather have it dark now or at 7 o'clock in the morning? And I'd rather have it dark at 7 o'clock in the morning. But See, I guess for I, farmers, I loved, you know. I loved the extra hour of sleep, even though i I got to admit I didn't really take much advantage of it yesterday. No, you but stay I up think later. We should have, I think we should have daylight savings every two weeks. We should move the clock back an hour. <laughs> you'll go through a period like we're in Iceland or something where it's dark all day, but then you'll get like 24 hours of daylight at some point, presumably. <laughs> An extra hour of sleep every single weekend. It would be great. Yes, you take that one uh, to the people and see what you get tonight on that. Uh, it, it's it's hilarious. I've been in radio for 37 years, and every six months we talk about this, and it's the same it's crap every single year. I don't know. Either change it or, or just, you know, poop or get off the pot, I guess. All right, let's talk about Angelo Mosca. Give me a story. Give me uh, uh, something you got. I remember one time having him on the air at Y95, and I was so intimidated. He was so big and just a big, burly man. He shook my hand. I couldn't even see my hand. And I made the mistake, I got the O and the A mixed up, and I said, Angela Moscow. And he goes, Angela? Angela's a girl's name. Are you calling me a girl? 
I thought he was going to like body slam me across the table. I just feel the sweat in my head and oh my God, I made a mistake. But your thoughts? Uh, there were two people in all the time I've worked in sports that have scared me. One was Angelo. One was a guy who some people will know. You may or may not know him named Hoist Gracie, who was the first ever winner of the UFC at the Ultimate Fighting Championship. Oh, yeah. Who threatened to essentially um, chicken wing me and pull all my limbs apart. That's another story for another day. But Ange was one of the most big-hearted guys, but he was terrifying mm-hmm. at the same time because of what you just said. When you shook his hand, you did no longer had a hand. You were an it disappeared. Of him. You were, <laughs> yeah, you were just an extension of Angelo Mosca at that point. And and even um, when he would get up into his later years, he still had the kind of grip that y- you could yeah. still be wincing when he decided yeah. to shake your hand. Yes. And you know, it's funny because I, I don't want to steal something that Bubba O'Neill posted on on Facebook today, but it is a memory that I also share and number of years ago, back when Bernie Custis was still with us and Ron Lancaster was still with us and, of course, Ange, when you would go to Ticats practice, where the Ticats used to run out at Iverwind Stadium, it was a little door in the, I guess, southeast corner, sort of near where the visitor's dressing room was. And there was an overhang there. And the three of those guys, like the, the league's three elder statesmen, or at least the Ticats guys, would sit there and just talk to guys in the media like us and talk to each other and tell stories. And it was incredible. Like Bernie Custis, one of the kindest human beings on the planet, but also a guy who knew everything you could possibly know about football. Ron Lancaster, we all know. And then Ange, who every story about Ange, um, I don't know that they were all true, but they were all hilariously entertaining. And you never turned away with Ange because, don't forget, he didn't just have football stories to talk yes. about if you got yeah. lucky you could delve into the Ange mosca king kong mosca wrestling yeah. stories and that's wild there now i'll tell you another funny story this was to do with Ange a number of years ago three four years ago um for a while one of his tag team partners was um uh oh what's his name now Woo, uh uh the wrestler blonde hair uh the nature boy rick flair Right. So Rick, Rick Flair was coming up to a Comic-Con in Hamilton or Niagara Falls, I can't remember, and I had him on my show. And I think it says something about maybe how crazy some of their, their stories were away from the ring, that when I said, hey, tell me some of the things you and Ange did when you were outside the ring, he threatened to hang up on me if I asked that question again. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. He wasn't joking. He wasn't joking. I, oh, man. Look, Ange was, I know you got to run. Ange was truly... Um, I, I'm going to steal from everybody today. Steve Milton wrote this, and I agree in the spec. I agree 100% with what Steve said. There is no person, athlete, actor, politician, whatever, there is no person who has more closely symbolized Hamilton mm. across this country to the rest of the country than Ange Mosca. He was synonymous with this yep. town. Well said. That you can't do, I mean, there's no one else. There is no one who fits that mm. now. He, he is gone, and that's, that's, that's the end of that. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up next and columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott. Have a great show. I'm sure you got more on this tonight. Thanks, Scott. If you're all about drama and gossip, well, this isn't for you. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. And that is a wrap for the show. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to Will, Ted, and Diana for all contributing today. As always, we leave it to you, the CHML listener. 
to have the last word on border reopenings. The border's open. I'm headed to Disneyland. I really hope that Mickey had his PCR test. Maybe it was tested on him first. 